community is as strong as it is interdependent and that it is the strength of the community is directly proportional to the sort of severity of interdependence there is. So I like to say a bowling league is a community because Frank needs you there on Tuesday night, but it's only so strong. Whereas Sebastian Younger writes this book, Tribe, where he talks about war platoons, where if Frank, if you're not there for him on Tuesday, he dies, right? There's a different level of interdependent community that comes from that. And so I'm constantly trying to figure out how we can live in more interdependent ways in a society that is, for both capitalistic reasons and for convenience, pushing us towards further and further autonomy. Because interdependence is inconvenient. It's really inconvenient, right? If the snowplow didn't come by and I had to shovel your driveway for you, that does something for us. But it's shitty for my day. How we're wired, right? As social creatures, we've evolved for that. And it may be inconvenient, but there's a specific set of neurotransmitters that are reliant on that level of dynamism in the social sphere. And we all just went through recently an enormous disruption of that through COVID. And and thank goodness we all get to be here now in, in situ together. And it really called into question what that interdependence looks like and why. I can have somebody go shopping for me. and I may never see anything other than their first name. They just might drop it off at my door and I don't even see their face or say thank you in person. And it deleverages that inherent social dynamism. And this is a wonderful example of the sort of affirmation of the value of that, right? Like we all still had to leave our abodes today or wherever we woke up this morning, we had to head out and eventually wound up here. And I worked today and it was fairly demanding. And I'm sure lots of you had responsibilities today, but you're still here. Like it was inconvenient, right? To show up and do this. And yet this is for me an incredibly meaningful affirmation of why that inconvenience is net positive. This is what we're built to do. And I just really applaud any efforts that we could muster within our also inherent laziness to rise to the occasion and to continue to embrace the chaos that is our fellow beings. Greetings, future fossils, and welcome to episode 207 of the podcast that explores our place in time. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and tonight it is the eve of my son's second birthday. By the time you hear this show, I will be, or will have been bouncing in a uh, giant trampoline playground with him and my four-year-old daughter. And something I've noticed upon becoming a parent is that I have reignited my passion for excellent playground design. Shout out to my old friend and former roommate Topher Sipes, who actually did work professionally on playground design for a while before he and I were friends. And shout out to the Cacophony Society and Suicide Club who saw the future of the city as a playground and hugely inspired the foundational philosophy of Burning Man. Shout out to the Situationists who sought the ability to redefine and claim an urban space through playful movement. Shout out to Parkour, every act of reappropriation of rediscovery. The creating spaces that intentionally afford that kind of movement of agency from the center to the edge, that's an aesthetic that fits into a larger conversation about what it is to raise something well. This is a topic that I've been exploring on Future Fossils since forever. Really, this was a principal preoccupation of mine since well before I became a parent because it's just so obviously the case that we don't just 
make technologies, but we actually teach them now as well. And as the old song goes, teach your children well. So I'm especially delighted to share this episode with you, which was originally planned as a trialogue between me and the original co-host, Evan Skytree Snyder, and my friend Ryan Madsen, who was a co-founder of Red Penguin Records in Boulder, Colorado, and then later the Junkyard Social Club, an amazing space for all ages where we had this live recording and ultimately invited up uh, a number of other very thoughtful people from the audience to weigh in on this, including uh, Roger Tonis, Aaron Gabriel Nyer, and Juicy Life, or at least that's the only name I ever got from him. A very bolder 2023 conversation, if I may say so. Squarely planted at the intersection between holistic, full-body thinking and feeling on the one hand, and crazy future tech stuff on the other. But before we dive into a fascinating conversation about what it means to steward something, what it means to not just create, but also parent and care for a Frankenstein conversation, I want to thank Michael Fishman, Matt Buttrill, Jeffrey Silberman, Casa Ratica, Giuseppe Alkire, Wetflix Studios, and Don Hillman for being the newest to join the generous ranks of folks who are helping me not go <laughs> totally broke right now as I look for new ways to apply myself. And Future Fossils is my sole source of self-employment income. Yikes. Well, folks, if you're listening to this and you appreciate the works of synthesis I do on the show, I am currently available for contract in strategic advisory positions or short-term consults. And thank you from the bottom of my heart to the few hundred people supporting this show on patreon.com slash Michael Garfield or michaelgarfield.substack.com. My entire family thanks you. And we're doing extremely fun things. Right now I'm hosting a neural learning web course on the science and philosophy of the Jurassic Park films, concomitant with a series of boisterous watch-alongs. If that sounds like your thing, the course is entirely by donation, and you can join us whenever you want without feeling like you've missed previous sessions because they are available as recorded. Also, I'm setting up for a whole series of delightful book clubs, and about to release some music I have been working on for years and years and years. I hope you'll find me on Patreon or Substack if you have not already. And again, thank you all. And with that, here is a wonderful conversation I'm very glad to have had live at the Junkyard Social Club in Boulder, Colorado on June 9th, 2023. Enjoy, and then please go leave a sterling review. Thanks. Greetings, everybody. Tonight, we have Evan Snyder dear old friend and original co-host of Future Fossils. And we have Ryan Madsen, who I've actually known for even longer than Evan, but only intermittently. And we don't really know where this conversation is going, but I think what I told Ryan was that I wanted to start by talking about this time as being an unusual time, or it seems unusual to us living through it, and to think about responsibility. What does it mean to be good makers, 
good parents? What does it mean to launch an organization? What does it mean to steward an ecosystem right now when everything seems like it feels up for grabs? So yeah. I also just wanted to add to that. Just thanks to all of you for being here tonight. This is a perfect little intimate crowd. So this is a sort of organically grown in the moment family experience in a way. So a lot of familiar faces here tonight. I'm glad to see all of you and a lot of new faces and some folks I just met. So just thanks again for showing up tonight. There's a lot going on, including a regional burn and plenty to do in Boulder as always. So this is a great setting. And thanks to Ryan for hosting us in his establishment. This is a very special place. It's only a few blocks from where I live with my fiance, Sean, who's here in the back as well. And I have always wanted to stop in here. I've always been curious seeing the structures emerging above the fence line as I drive past here on parole, but it's my first time stopping in and it will definitely not be my last. So just thanks again to Ryan and all the folks here at the Junkyard Social Club. Yeah, this is two of my dreams coming together. I think this is a pity seat. I'm up here because I have privileges of the space, but I love to listen to things like this. I pay attention and we'll... Getting to do this in this space is an incredible collision of dreams. Thanks. Awesome. I'm very thankful to be a part of that. So I don't, just for the record, you're a successful entrepreneur and I'm an unemployed weirdo. So this is not a pity situation. Here. I'm an employed weirdo in the middle here. Yeah. So I want to pitch these questions to the crowd also, to the extent that you're a crowd, there's five of you, but I want to, there's, we have a serious brain trust here. And I just, I want to make this a conversation where anyone feels like they can contribute, by which I mean, just come sit here and I'll give you a minute on the mic to say your piece, if you're so inspired. Yeah. So anyway, I've just been thinking a lot. This is where my head's been at lately. And this is what I warned Ryan and I believe Evan that we'd be talking about, which is... I don't know if I got a warning, but let's do this. Nor do I. Okay. That, yeah. that makes it sound like there's yes, more of a plan. Yes, has come closer. The, okay. So... I was just talking about this with Roger a moment before the show, which is that several years ago, I started thinking about all of the tools that we have, these new tools that are data-powered, computation-powered, psychedelic, right? Inherently, in the sense of psychedelic being mind-manifesting, that these are tools that the most vocal and eloquent proponents of these tools talk about them as closing the gap between the imagination and what is physically instantiated, right? Obviously, your imagination is, what was it? Vsauce talking about the internet weighing a strawberry about as much oh. as it's still, like your imagination is still a physical object. Like memes are an op a physical thing, but at any rate, 3D printing stuff out of a brain scanner, these kinds of things. And I think recently as the generative AI systems have come on specifically and really leapt into a public awareness and gotten so much better and are being now deployed in all of these things that were as the end consumer, as like the, the chimp with an iPad, millions and millions of people are using, billions, that it's gone for me from this sort of, oh, the internet is a psychedelic. That's fun to think about. To, oh, shit. Everyone in the world is having a trip that they didn't necessarily agree to right now. Or they're surrounded by people who are tripping. <laughs> and no matter how deep you escape into the woods, that's still happening. <laughs> so... It's like suddenly everything that I'm learning from all my OG, like deadhead fan, like old hippie people is suddenly applicable 
to, you know, these, you know, how to be a good Borg. And that strikes me as really ironic. And this is the last piece I'll say about it. And then I just invite you to riff, you all to riff on this, which is that, you know, I, I always felt like there was a seed of truth in this sort of the channeled teachings of Abraham law of attraction kind of stuff. But the cultural presentation of that stuff really pissed me off because it's like victim blaming and everybody's focused on getting a better car or like three girlfriends or whatever shit. And, and I was like, there's so like, like whatever's right about this, there's something wrong in the telling it's coming through a dirty window. Now I'm like, this is a core competency among people who can just think up whatever they want and then post it to social media. And then suddenly you like, whoops, you're seeing this now. You're like, whoop, like you've somebody, the people that are just like obsessed with hell porn imagery on mid journey and are just like flooding my social media feeds with this. This is the absolute worst part of your own. Like this is the darkest corner of your psyche. And you're just like vomiting it into the common space. I've avoided that vomit so far. This is a new phenomenology to me. So I will continue to avoid that, it sounds like. So the question is the general question about how do we think about our responsibility to one another and to those who those coming generations in terms of we watched The Incredibles the other day, and there's that great line where the villain, who is this sort of rejected tech wizard, says, I'm going to release all of these tools for everyone to use, all these tools based on your superpowers, and then everyone will be a superhero, and I will be the one that sold it to them, and then when everyone's a superhero, no one will be. And it's, okay, that checks. That's exactly what's happening <laughs> That's right exactly now. exactly what's happening. It's like Elon Musk is, I will be the one who, you know, and then you will all appreciate my jokes. And it's, it's so, yeah. So I like, how do we all, this is a community sense-making thing. Like, how do you get a grip on this situation? And what are the, yeah, how are you thinking through all of this right now? Anyway. Uh, I just wanted to add really quick, just to interject this for a moment, but older is, pretty ideal urban, suburban, outdoor environment in which to bring up this particular subject because the through line here is that all of those aspects, the old deadheads wandering around on Pearl Street on a 10 strip into somebody wandering around with a, I don't know, an Apple Vision Pro next year on Pearl Street. All of it is pretty continuous here. It's a very suitable environment to bring up this dialogue. (laughs) Ryan, you got anything to add to that? You own the business here. You've been, you're on Pearl also. Honestly, I'm still getting my head around the psychedelics of AI and the internet. And the way I've always thought about that before, I think psychedelic experiences have sometimes a connotation that comes with wisdom of seeing visions, of seeing the future of helpful, which obviously is not always true. And I'm trying to apply that now to my filter of understanding this technology I think regardless what these tools are, what the internet was, what AI is now, is intellect amplifier. And amplifier of many kinds. We can, as I've heard now, the phrase we apply to coffee, do stupid things faster with more energy, now is our amplification based on this technology, which has me constantly wondering who we are as a technology. This is not going to make us wiser, like tripping might. (laughs) It's just going to enhance what we are currently aiming towards. For me, the reflection is, who are we as parents of this, you know, birthed technology, this amplifier that is, we're going to do stupid things faster with more energy? Yeah, I think about it in terms of that, of course, being one direction it can go, right? Of being a 
walking semi-permeable membrane, which biologically speaking, we all have in our cell walls and our epidermis. Basically, the idea being that there's a boundary between us and the physical world, but that boundary in the case of our skin is semi-permeable. Some things can be accepted into it and some things cannot. And sometimes the system malfunctions and things that are not meant to get into that system do get in. And it's like a biological gatekeeper to provide a buffer so that you don't completely close yourself off because then, of course, you just shrivel up and die. But if you take in everything, the same would be true, right? So there's this middle ground. So seeing this increasingly complex emergent phenomena of machine intelligence and now colloquially speaking AI is something that I'm both very excited about and very cautious around. And I see that in in most individuals I talk with about this subject. And I'd imagine this is not all we're going to talk about tonight. So if you're burnt out on AI, I'm sure we're going to segue to something else because Michael has a way of doing that. And with all of our powers combined, I'm sure we'll roll this into something new and fresh here in a moment. But Together, you can stop me. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But essentially, I've been watching all this unfold, starting with, I guess, going back to in terms of the visual output, like the Google Deep Dream, right, which had a very psychedelic quality to it. And of course, going into mid-journey and now increasingly complex forms of artificial intelligence tools. Like I recently became a beta tester for the Google Test Kitchen suite. And there's one in particular that's able to generate music. It's a little bit better than some of its predecessors like Refusion, but it's not quite there yet. And allegedly, per some pretty recent legal developments, it's not something you can copyright. So I can't make a track entirely out of some AI-generated output and call it mine. But the way I've been approaching it is very similar to, and legal disclaimer here, may or may not have done this. In sampling, sometimes you lift from a source that may be copywritten, but if you demolish it enough, if you slice it and change it, pitch stretch it, use granular synthesis, whatever it is. 30% um, different? Something like that. Sure, yeah. Maybe take a sample from Jurassic Park, which Michael can probably narrate from beginning to end in his dreams, let alone in real space, and completely smash it into something new that he would not recognize. And maybe that's a challenge that I'll try to take up at some point. But that's how I envision utilizing AI tools going forward is just another opportunity to get a novel sound that I'll probably just go and slice up until it's unrecognizable and combine it with other things and press on. So for me, it's very similar, at least right now, to field recording, just going outside with a field recorder and picking up the sounds in my environment or using a tool like a there's a box called an ether, which is basically a, a radio receiver that takes in all frequencies at once. So you get a bunch of random noise and you can press it up against chain link fences and use that as an antenna and hear 15 different radio DJs all talking at once in this random clutter. It's super fascinating. But for me personally, the Google test kitchen results I've had are not too dissimilar from that. It's just one of many sample fools that I have available and I may or may not use it. It also isn't necessarily as compelling to me as say, just taking a, a sample of the kids playing outside because there are a couple of them out there are Michael's children. And it's a very direct representation of where I am now. And I like to use my music as a diary, as a way of logging where I was at that moment in time. And the AI tools that I have access to so far are somewhat removed from that. So they will have a place and a setting. And 
I'm using some plugins now that use machine learning to assist with my mastering process. And that's greatly accelerated my ability to master my own music. And because I'm learning from it, as well as from my own experience, it's accelerated my ability to listen almost impartially to my music because I have a helper who's there at all times. And of course, I have buddies. I can go and listen to my music on their system and get their input. But I have another familiar, albeit a very unfamiliar one. So I just want to point that Evan and I, both being fans of Boards of Canada, you know, everything that you're saying about sampling reminds me that music has the rights to children. That there is something about when my daughter was six months old and I took her to Meow Wolf when they had Microsoft at Meow Wolf for this invite only thing where they had a hemispherical 64 DSLR camera array and they were scanning people into their augmented reality app the portal bay app where you could like make a miniaturized version of yourself like you're seeing with all of these ar toys now where you scan the barcode on the dinosaur and then you can put the dinosaur anywhere and so it's okay you and i before the show we were talking about consent and consent is something that exists in a frame like the socio-cultural frame of a modern society with a modern idea of a bounded self when anthropologists go into these foraging societies and they you know, the, the foragers just raid their suitcase. And so that's because they see you as part of the tribe. They don't, they're not thinking about like personal property in the same way that you are as an, as a modern American. And I look at, you know, where I am now and like the boundaries around all this stuff. And so where I'm going with this is that we were talking about when you're talking about things not being copyrighted. And it's like, I'm watching all of these people in the art, my friends and people I respect, artists I've always respected, that are really pushing back against the way that the corpus of human cultural output has been hoovered up into these systems to train them. And they're like, no, this is wrong. And it's okay, but you only believe that this is wrong because you have come up in a paradigm in which you, as someone who, have, who has refined the raw material of your being through practice, have developed a kind of talent or expertise that, set, expertise that sets you apart from other people and allows you to compete more effectively within an IP regime where maybe you have a small chance of succeeding professionally as an artist and feeding yourself, but most likely you will die in the street. And... Is that really like when all of these people are begging Disney to extend the domain of copyright to protect this sort of, but I want to be in the Hunger Games. Is that really the desirable solution here? Or is what is needed a new, like a whole new kind of construction of intellectual property based on a construction, a new construction of self that emerges out of these networked digital infrastructures. And so I'm just going to toss this to you, Ryan, at this point, because you're holding a space where people, you're basically holding a kind of Professor X kind of academy here where you're teaching people to empower themselves with these tools and to use them carefully and always keep three legs on the three, <laughs> three limbs on the playground at any time. And there's a really interesting balance of in evoking a kind of plasticity and playfulness and a childlike spirit in the adults here, but also empowering people of all ages with these competencies that a lot of adults don't even have. And so, yeah, like this is, I do want anybody from the audience to kind of sit in on this particular piece of it, if you're interested. I'm really curious to know how this sort of egolytic piece of this 
how you all see the tension between the reasonable humanistic demands for dignity within a system that we've inherited are going to be reconciled with this sort of now everything belongs to everyone and you're everyone at the same time through 10G direct brain sharing shit that's coming down the pike, right? you got a machine translation layer with dolphins now. Right. So if you want to, feel free. But and also for the purposes yeah, of, of the recording of the podcast, too, I just want to mention that if you do feel compelled to share something, feel free to grab a mic or just shout it to us and we can repeat it just so that anybody listening later on a podcast platform will be able to interpret the contribution you've made. We want to make sure that's clear to everybody. Right, but if you do come up, give your name first. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Because we're not all one person yet. I love this picture of this interconnected, all is one mind, hive mind society where we're all ruffling through each other's suitcases. <laughs> but I do think that there is a certain type of like technological psycho spiritual bypassing there, which like the fact that we are upset as artists that our work is being hoovered up by Google, by the corporations, are that they are not part of the tribe, not whatsoever. In fact, they're part of this giant exploitative machine that is going to ruin your life. And it is for their private and sole benefit. And I think that we have to, I mean, there's a much more fundamental restructuring of corporate law, of business, of economy that would have to take place first before I'm happy to hive mind with Google. So right. what does that look like? I love the bumper sticker. I'll believe corporations are people when Texas executes one. Right. But then like, how do, I feel like the layers that are coming online now are basically going to, they seem like they may level the playing field as far as coordinated collective human action against corporate superpower. Like that there was that leaked Google right. memo, right? About how open source language models were lapping Microsoft and Google. And so maybe we're at the beginning of seeing the snow speeders knocking down the AT-ATs. This was the dream of the internet. It was going to democratize the people, give everyone the power of knowledge. But I think that we're also moving so quickly to the point where power differential is so grand that the many still don't have it. And, and can, can the megacorp like commandeer any point in time what they want first and silo it and wall it off in all the ways they're able to first? Let's let open source thrive exactly until I need it to be private. And mm -hmm. I'm going to steal it all, wall it off, block that. Love to believe in this idea that the democratization, like this power of open source is going to allow us all to challenge the status quo. And in fact, it must, right? It literally has to. But I am pessimistic. Yeah, I'm going to say the same, essentially. So I was actually talking to another engineer about this morning. He's a former engineer for Amp Robotics here in the Denver area and now works as an engineer in contracting, a contract manufacturing team that we're working with right now. And we were discussing the recent advents in AI and riffing off of the unveiling of the Apple Vision system, which may or may not become a thing a la Google Glass or not. I'm rooting for it. Both. <laughs> you would. I wore my first Google Glass in Michael's presence after taking it off his face. So essentially, we both, though, talking to this other engineer this morning, almost immediately jinxed each other by saying, you'd rather just go out and dig in the mud what the kids are doing outside. Just It almost drives this compulsion to embrace the true deep elemental physicality and yeah there's me wearing michael's google glass back in 2013 okay <laughs> in new york city 
it almost drives this deeper compulsion to to seek more rooted element of my existence. Not to reject it, but again, to call back to the semi-permeable membrane, right? I'm interested. I'm not going to deny myself the ability to use these tools. But I also, during COVID, happened to dive into modular synthesis and built up several rigs, which are on stage, and dive into novel input sources using minerals and other natural sources. And I'm referring to that in a soft kind of fashion as geosonification off of data sonification. And didn't think about the fact that here in, in 2023, it would be something that an AI effectively can't touch. It's inherently physical. It's directly connected to the natural world. That's where my inputs are coming from. And in my standard sort of production methodology, I put everything together in the end stage and the final assembly in a DAW in Ableton. And maybe the Google test kitchen or other tools in the future will start to increasingly or asymptotically approximate that. But like this other side hobby I have in music now is almost until there's a physical Android, like data or God forbid lore are sitting next to me. That's just for me as a meat bag to experience. And it's interesting. It makes me feel like a little safer in this semi-permeable space. Like I'm watching and seeing what's happening in machine learning. And I've worked a lot in automation and what was increasingly becoming full autonomy in robotics. And this is something that's inherently technological, but it's very meaty. It's very substantive and it's very satisfying. And it's in the moment. It's coming out of the materials and, and the conditions around me. And I feel very pleased by the fact that I find myself here with that system available for me to dig into. And there's no computer on stage. This is the first time I think in a long time I've had no laptop. And yeah, there are some microprocessors in some of my modules, but they're not connected to the internet. One of them does have its own Wi-Fi hotspot, but we'll ignore that for the sake of convenience. I see somebody from the stage or the floor yeah. has joined us. So No computers, yeah. just a few microprocessors. They're not connected to the internet. <laughs> oh, one's got Wi-Fi. Yeah. Semi-permeable, semi-permeable. I do just want to say, I love the, the circle there from playing in the mud through to the technological explosion back to the crystals and the rocks that you're working with. And... When we opened the Junkyard Social Club, we had pivoted out of another business some of us had worked on prior to that, where this very building was purchased to be a much larger scale, pristine science museum. And it was an incredible vision, but very technological. We had an entire black box theater that kids would be running around in VR and AR goggles and an incredible 3D sound room and all these wonderful dreams. But when we did make the pivot to Junkyard Social Club, there was this like, aha, yes, of course, when it comes to kids that you put a kid in some goggles and they, you might blow their mind. They might see the aspiration to what technical, like what technology can do, but their leap that they have to make before they think that they are capable of any of that is drastic. And there's no visibility into the engineering. It's magic. Whereas if you give them a bucket and a rope, like those same principles that like in the end build this console or build a set of AR goggles are actually being practiced at a way that a kid can touch. And we see it every day. So It's very satisfying as well, honestly, to like just remember that this is all here. The playgrounds are still standing and then kids are climbing around on them and maybe getting some splinters, but they signed a waiver and got plenty of splinters without one when I was a kid and it was worth it. So it's... Yeah, very much a reminder of that deep-seated need to dig into the world and sometimes literally dig a hole just because. Yeah, the simulated steak tastes delicious. <laughs> yeah, hey, y'all. My name is Juicy Life, and some of the themes that I'm picking up on 
artificial intelligence and also how to reconcile with where we're at in our culture and society with so much that's evolving, so much that's happening at such a quick rate. It's impossible really for most people, anybody really to track everything that's happening. The really big core thing that comes up for me is how I reconcile it is meaning. What is the meaning? What is the purpose? And to me, I know you're evolutionary biology. I love to pull from evolutionary biology, right? Like, why? what is our evolutionary trajectory here? What are we doing? And to me, what has helped me in my journey is going on this path of discovering what my purpose is in the larger whole, right? Like, the stomach cells are in the body operating for their own, like, the purpose of the whole, doing their own individual task. And I think they were in the same stage of our evolution, endosymbiotic evolution, growing from bacteria, viruses, to single cell organisms, to multicellular organisms, hundreds of trillions of cells. Now we're at a planetary scale. But the problem is that the underlying operating system that people are operating on is the individualistic separate level of consciousness. Even in the term artificial intelligence, words are important. They're like magic. Artificial inherently deems it outside of ourselves or separate than ourselves. I actually prefer the term integrated intelligence. We're working with it. We are working with computers, not just with quote unquote artificial intelligence, but with these cloud infrastructures that have been built too. And I like to think of it as like the caterpillar to the butterfly. We had to go through this separate capitalistic system, developing all of these things, using oil, building the manufacturing capabilities and the computers to be able to jujitsu. The material is there. The caterpillar grew and it dissolved to a point where then it could reform using new imaginal cells. And so what I see in me doing my work and standing more in my purpose, discovering that within me, making steps, making failures, but learning in the process of who I am and what I'm here to do, I see a more congruent, more aligned, more beautiful reality showing up around me, which is also reflective of the beautiful space that we're in now that has been cultivated by another beautiful creator in the world. And I think the more that we, I know you're an artist as well, I think the more that we step up into our artistry and our creativity is really the turning point of our culture and society, recognizing that we are artists, we are creators in everything that we do, in every breath that we take. We are destroying and we are creating. The more conscious that we can become of this, the more aligned and the more congruent and the more beautiful the reality becomes around us. And again, with the scientific view, oftentimes puts to the measuring instruments outside of ourselves, as opposed to actually saying we are the most advanced technology. And what does it look like to optimize ourselves, not just physically with the biohacking and everything that they talk about there, not just through the consciousness, through psychedelics, but actually weaving those together as a whole and who we are and what the reality experience that we can have around us when we are coming from a more aligned, congruent place. And yeah. so that's what I see. And that's what inspires me to move forward in the world with as many crazy things that are happening. Yeah. Excellent. I think we're starting to get to Terrence McKinnian territory with the eschaton and also a virgins in the force. So it does seem apparent to me that we're reaching some sort of pivot point. Which direction it goes? I don't know. I'm hopeful for your perception and integration with the world being what tips us into a new paradigm for the positive. And I see that as a very strong potential, but there is the potential for the inverse. Yeah. So in thinking about all of this, and again, I was, when I was talking with Roger before the show, I was like, it used to be the case that I thought like being overwhelmed by all of this myself, I was like, okay, there's something that we can learn from the practices of psychedelic harm reduction to mitigate people's like 
immunological psychic response to this change. As Stuart Brand says in his book, Clock of the Long Now, when progress happens too fast, people call it change and they start to reject it. They resist it. And in the sense that, quote, a demon is an angel denied, that whether one experiences nervous system intensity as pain or pleasure has to do with the dukkha, right? It has to do with the amount of resistance to that, which it might be totally reasonable, right? Like it may be that you're just not acclimated to that. And it's so you're this constriction around this stuff is perfectly understandable. But for me, the sort of open question with this is you seem relatively well disposed to surfing whatever kind of weirdness might unfold, but not everyone is. And I'm sitting here trying to think about how my mentor, Richard Doyle talked a lot about, he prefers the term ecodelic over the term psychedelic. His whole point is these adjuncts to our intelligence make us exquisitely sensitive to minor linguistic variations, right? Like to the algorithms with which we code, the set and setting with which we code these trips. They they expose the nerve. They allow us to metaprogram things in the language of John Lilly. And so the language that we use to describe this stuff is extremely important. And so, yeah, so talking about it in some other way than artificial intelligence seems to matter, right? What else do you see as important in the way that we can flip the script from rather, <laughs> so the more we talk about trying to prevent a Terminator scenario, the more likely it becomes because I'm not hearing no, it's just hearing Terminators, Right. So there's the what's the question for me becomes one of technologizing attention. We've already learned to do this very well. Tristan Harris in the Center for Humane Technology and, and like all this conversation about the attention economy and the capture and uh, the financialization of attention. Okay, great. But we're at a point now where I think it's important for us to hammer the cannons back into bells to decide how we're going to use these technologies that started out as weapons effectively and, and to use them for quote unquote the liberation of consciousness or for the establishment of a planetary ethos and practice of stewardship. And then so it's this is the open question with which I want to like bring this conversation to climax, which is how do you how do any of you sitting here see it like how are you thinking about encouraging people to turn their attention and toward the best of what is possible here, because that's what's going to be amplified. Yeah. And I just want to add one more thing to you before Roger, you hop on. I'm sure you'll have something awesome to say, but you see, just thank you for your contribution to the conversation. We've been talking a lot about technologies and these esoteric subjects, and you brought a lot of warmth and human emotion and feeling to this conversation. And that means a great deal. And I think something that we could do well to integrate further into these discussions that are sometimes more lofty, essentially. So thanks for bringing that heart. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And one of the last bits that I just wanted to pepper in here is another word, which is dialogue, which Latin etymology, dial is flow, logos is meaning. And so when we can be in dialogue, it's a flow of meaning greater than any individual can bring through alone. And so I just want to honor that as the space that we're cultivating for something greater than ourselves to emerge. Thank you. Said my friend. Said, said, hi, I'm Roger Tonus. I'm a geek. I've got lots of double E degrees and I've been studying emerging complexity for 30 years. Answer your question, Michael, about what do we do to make people see this differently, to see that this technology is not just a separator, financialization tool. It's got to be something that gives people 
two things. And every human being in this room and every human being on this planet, irregardless of age, you want two things. You want to feel safe and you want to feel in control. And that's different for everyone. Okay, so if we're going to, as technologists, if we're going to make people feel safe with AI, so they're not going to be worried about lore or the Borg, then we have to take the responsibility to communicate what's happening in a way that makes people feel safe and in control. And to do that, you have to understand them. You don't just have to be spinning around in your head, which I do too much, and obviously you guys all do too, and GC as well. We have, it's a responsibility. You have to communicate and communicate the dialogos, right? You have to get into a flow. You have to bring them into the flow, right? And as engineers, sometimes there are scientists who are like, oh, marketing, that doesn't. But we have to become marketers of the value of what we're doing for the world. And we're doing a really bad job of it because all we're doing on the internet or wherever is arguing about whether it's going to be the Terminator or not. Is this going to be Skynet? And the answer is, it'll be whatever we choose. And you alluded to that in an earlier comment. And so I just ask everybody to think about that. What makes you feel safe and in control? And communicate that to the people so that they understand why you're uncomfortable with the technology. But then we have the responsibility as technologists as they're pushing this technology. And it's our responsibility to communicate better. And to, to dial it down from extremely high-level places that we love to play in, and you guys all love to play in because you're here, we have to, it's not dumbing down. It's bringing it down into sort of the gut, right? And I believe we're in this circular spiral, and we spiraled out of tribal. We spiraled out of everybody owns everything. And the reason why is because we could only get 150 people, the Dunbar number. Right? We could only cooperate to that level. So this entire last 10,000 years since the plow ruined the tribe and animism and all those things, we're in a 10,000-year spiral and it's coming to a head right now. Can we use the technology to spiral into raising the Dunbar number to billions right? so that we won't kill each other? So anyway, those are my comments. <laughs> yeah. Really love what you guys are saying. Thank you, Roger. Thanks, Roger. I mean, that piggybacks very much off of what Juicy shared as well, just this bringing the heart to the enterprise desire to explore and satisfy our curiosity and manifest these new ideas in physical form that can interact with others and create new paradigms, right? Like ultimately has to be driven by the desire to serve the greater good and the community and the just joy that it brings us to see other people empowered and laughing and creating with these tools. Absolutely. And helping other people see themselves as brilliant. My wife wrote a book called The Art of Alignment, A Practical Guide to Inclusive Leadership. And she downloaded this concept one day in our closet. And she goes, oh my God, I got to download. I'm like, what is it? It's an acronym. I'm like, oh, right. I'm an electrical engineer. I love acronyms. <laughs> and she's always, what's the acronym? It's SHUVA, S-H-U-V-A. And she said, this is the ultimate superpower. And she's going to do a TEDx talk actually in September on this. And it's to be seen, heard, understood, valued, and appreciated. And that's the thing that we all want individually. That's what our uniqueness wants. We want to be shuvahed. But there's also, we got to turn that around and shuvah the collective, shuvah the group. And we're all afraid that if we pay attention to the collective, if we get sucked into this hive mind and we have all these bad things about the Skynets and the Borgs and all that. But the reality is that's where we're headed. We just got to do a good job of it. Right, because you can optimize. It's like a multivariable optimization problem, which is a, something I did for many years as a control systems guy. In the gut, you <laughs> got to feel it. Right, you got to optimize the need to be uniquely seen as a snowflake, but also to be part of something bigger than yourself. So there's the snowflake, total uniqueness, and then there's the ocean. Everything's the same at the same time. Right, that's what we're looking for: is to balance those two variables. And how do we do that? Technology can help us do that and scale it past the 150 people. Mm. Yeah. Roger, I want to highlight two things I heard. 
One thing I think we can turn into a very tangible call. Something that we need is to relinquish our society's belief that technology and science should be agnostic. And it never is. It never is. We need to call on engineers, on scientists, to build in to the technology, to the science, an inherent moral code. And this is not something that is added on later through regulation or an addendum, but that is somehow inherent to the system itself. Eisenhower, rules of robotics, essentially. Are those hard-coded yet in Teslas? I don't know. Yeah, but if you've looked at... I've got a graph on my phone of what happens... If you actually do this, I don't know. Let me see if I can pick this out. I'll put it in the show notes. But it's most implementations of Asimov's laws result in like catastrophe. (laughs) And so I think that what, because that's the whole thing is like the alignment problem with AI is due to the fact, like the same reason Jurassic Park failed, right? Which is that you can't Mm. conceive of every edge case. So it's like you have like the sort of the reason it's going to take so goddamn long to get driverless cars everywhere like we were hyped to be is because there's the trolley problem is not one fork it's like this fractal thing and like you're always going to hit somebody that's the i was just yeah bitching at wall street bros on twitter today about how you talk about like profit and it's profit is actually just you know simplifying your value model so that it looks like you're creating something that you've extracted and so the question of like how do you run a sustainable business like a business that's going to be sustainable in the long term is like how can you expand and to consider all of the people that your revenue model is going to screw and then include them in the conversation of the stewardship of that project so that the kid maybe the kids mining rare earth minerals in the Congo or whatever are actually getting like paid fairly etc and then of course you've got to figure out how to oh god anyway yeah let's mine asteroids first please yeah so the, in order to make these systems inherently ethical we can't code for that they're learning from us the way that you know the kids are. You have to be good. And then the thing is just going to learn your goodness from you. And like any rules that you try to lay down are going to be oppressive in another 20 years. And that's like the Jeffersonian right. revolution window. Anyway. I do think, sorry. Yeah, Matthew, I was going to say to your point, if you're familiar with Daniel Schmachtenberger, he has a, a project called their Consilience Project. And he wrote a paper called Technology is Not Values Neutral. How do you make it value specific? That's what you're saying. We have to take the responsibility. That's what I'm saying. It's through omni-consideration. Omni-consideration. And the big challenge we have in what Schmachtenberger talks about is if people slow down to consider these harmful externalities that might come out of these unintended consequences, like you were talking about, then you're going to lose in the game that we play today, right? But we've got to change the game. And if we use technology to make the consideration of harmful externalities of technology faster, then people who are focused on the financialization of everything, then all of a sudden, then we can beat that, that what he calls a multipolar trap. And that's what we need to do. We need to put technology in service of a better humanity. And that's something that came to me like 20 years ago, across the street from Bell Labs when I was working there. Technology in service of a better humanity. And the reason why is because my friend brought his Unix manuals to have beers with me. And I'm like, seriously? You brought your Unix manuals to the bar. <laughs> What's wrong with you? That's technology for its own sake. We're going to put technology in service of a better humanity. Right. I think there's a question there of the Shoshona Zuboff, who gets to decide who decides, who has the power to direct this use of these powerful technologies that we're gaining. And there is the people usurping the open source, and we just hope we get there faster than the corporate or otherwise terrorists 
that are going to do nefarious things. But I actually wanted to call out one other thing that I heard in what you were saying. You listed control and safety as things that, the two things that people are seeking. In what you said, I heard so much about communication, collaboration. And I would lean to say that the third thing would be belonging. And for me, and one of the principles that we try to pull in at the Junkyard Social Club is this belief that a community is as strong as it is interdependent and that it is the strength of the community is directly proportional to the sort of severity of interdependence there is. So I like to say a bowling league is a community because Frank needs you there on Tuesday night, but it's only so strong. Whereas Sebastian Young, Sebastian Younger writes this book, Tribe, where he talks about war platoons, where if Frank, if you're not there for him on Tuesday, he dies, right? There's a different level of interdependent community that comes from that. And so I think I'm constantly trying to figure out how we can live in more interdependent ways in a society that is, for both capitalistic reasons and for convenience, pushing us towards further and further autonomy. Because interdependence is inconvenient. It's really inconvenient, right? If the snowplow didn't come by and I had to shovel your driveway for you, that does something for us. But it shitty for my day. How we're wired, right? As social creatures, we've evolved for that. And it may be inconvenient, but there's a specific set of neurotransmitters that are reliant on that level of dynamism in the social sphere. And we all just went through recently an enormous disruption of that through COVID. And and Mm. thank goodness we all get to be here now in, in situ together. And it really called into question what that interdependence looks like and why. I can have somebody go shopping for me, and I may never see anything other than their first name. They just might drop it off at my door, and I don't even see their face or say thank you in person. And it deleverages that inherent social dynamism. And this is a wonderful example of the sort of affirmation of the value of that, right? Like, we all still had to leave our abodes today or wherever we woke up this morning, we had to head out and eventually wound up here. And I worked today and it was fairly demanding. And I'm sure lots of you had responsibilities today, but you're still here. Like it was inconvenient, right? To show up and do this. And yet this is for me an incredibly meaningful affirmation of why that inconvenience is net positive. This is what we're built to do. And I just really applaud any efforts that we could muster within our also inherent laziness to, to... rise to the occasion and to continue to embrace the chaos that is our fellow beings yeah. and our yeah. and ourselves within that that frothy quantum foam of social dynamics. Hey, Amen. Last thing I'll add. To the oh, yeah. So for, further than just the sense of belonging and control and safety that you get from interdependence, I actually think that being needed is actually a deep source of purpose. And it's in that feeling of being needed that we derive a sense of purpose. And so coming back to some of the things that Juicy said, like, how do we aspire? How do we become the mind that we want to be? That's a great question. And I think the way is because we alternate too much between optimizing for me versus optimizing for we, and we need to do those in, in, in parallel, right? If you're only optimizing for we, but what you find out is if you optimize for both at the same time, you optimize both, right? So by creating that interdependent web, it's good for me, right? But at the same time, I'm creating that web to make it also to make it good for me, but also we. And so they're self-reinforcing if we do this correctly. And we've over-rotated. And the Buddha came up with the five attachments about the ego thousands of years ago, right? After the plow came in and created this stratification and city-states and things like that, as opposed to this dynamic, balanced we and me, 
right? And we need to, again, to use the technology to get back to balancing me with we. And what we'll find out is we'll optimize both. And you don't, it's not a zero-sum game, mm. right? That's scarcity thinking minute we could store mm-hmm. calories in the form of wheat because we had the plow, right? That brought on the scarcity economy, right? And it's been 10,000 years of scarcity as opposed to now what we have to spin into is abundance or we're going to have infinite scarcity to ourselves. This is the and mythology. I'm, we have I'm to tell the, the story. Because you said some things that I feel like are, I'm just going to play the conflict angle here because I'm sitting in the middle. <laughs> when you when I hear you talking about being able to coordinate at the scale of billions of people, in spite of the fact that, as E.O. Wilson made clear, we have these godlike technologies, medieval institutions, and paleolithic brains, mm-hmm. and we are not capable. Like I was talking about with Juicy when I got here, I was like, I'm at the point now where I feel like I need Apple Vision just in order to like automatically bring the name up of everybody I run into, so I can be like, oh, we met at Arise Festival in 2014. There's I've reached far exceeded my ability to like contextualize all of my social relationships. And this is creating all kinds of problems of trust. People are coming in with blockchain and stuff, trying to create scalable trust. But all that's really doing is allowing us to have sex with strangers and doing this thing where it's empowering precisely this sort of transactional convenience in our social relationships that it sounds like all of us to some level find kind of suspicious or burned our hands on the stove of a global economy. And what happens when you get to that scale is that there are trade-offs. I do want to speak from like a position of abundance here, but the reality is the human brain case is smaller than it was 50,000 years ago because of writing and the outboarding of enormous sections of human memory, right? And so the more we rely on each other, the more partial we become. And that gives us a sense of a place and of purpose and participation in something greater than ourselves. But it does make us more partial. It does seem to trend into the sort of the vision of the gray alien as this sort of biocybernetic community of things. And when you pull one out, it's like a phone with no network, mm-hmm. right? So this question about the ubermensch thing on one end, the individual as conceived by rational modernism. And then we're here in this middle space as the colonial organism. And then on the far end, you have something that's completely defined by contextual relationships. It has no genetic inheritance, like a whirlpool, right? And it looks like we're trending through colonial organism into the amnesiac where it's like the, like Doug Rushkoff talks about present shock. And like this, again, like this question of is trying to create these extraordinarily large and powerful, but ultimately very brittle and forgetful systems where it's like this culture remembers everything that has ever been recorded, but I don't, I can't even, I forget what I even had for lunch because the pace of information is so intense that basically my default mode network is offline and I'm just like having a time. Yeah. I don't know. Like I think sometimes I come down on clearly we need to, clearly we need to collaborate at greater scale. And then I think You're right, Ryan. People were saying the same kind of emancipatory rhetoric when Marconi invents the radio, and then we got fascists, right? And so... First radio broadcast, for example, (laughs) Hitler. So, I know that we're like etching deep into this time where I'm supposed to get up and be like a guy on stage. Televised radio broadcast. I just want to give, I want to give the floor to anyone else who feels like they want to synthesize or stack a cherry on top of this Mind Jazz Sunday before we move on into the musical translation of everything that's been discussed. 
Hey, Aloha. My name is Aaron Gabriel. I lead a local nonprofit here called Consciousness Hacking, which is very much weaving a lot of these conversations, technologies, psychotechnologies, self-understanding, cultural creativity. One of the things I really want to speak about is your coffee comment earlier. It was what do, helping us do dumb stuff faster with Stupid more energy. Things with Stupid more. things faster with more energy. And yeah, I, I see that with technology. One of my professors at Naropa, Travis Cox, had a similar term to your mentor. He called it eco-psychedelics. And in article he was, or an interview he was doing around that, there was this question around psychedelics, are they a non-specific amplifier or not? And that question is also present for technology. Is it a, does it have a mind and intention of its own or is it a non-specific amplifier? And so I think just dropping that in there, there's, there's this question about technology and there's the fear about technology that technology is going to kill us. Whereas I think the greater fear is what it has always been, which is that we are going to kill ourselves. Absolutely. And with that, we're killing ourselves because, yeah, we have this extremely self-destructive culture. Like, we've had a self-destructive culture for at least, like, a few centuries, probably in many ways a lot longer than that. That's okay. We are separate from nature, which means we are separate from ourselves, which means we're constantly destroying ourselves and constantly doing that. And so this culture seems to be doing it. And so this is the point someone was making earlier about we have to use technology to support us doing more good and creating it. And so this is the interesting thing because to ensure that we don't, not that technology doesn't kill us, to ensure that we don't kill ourselves using technology, we have to foster, we kind of have to shift the culture. But this is, to me, the part that's been really interesting lately, which is that the idea of changing culture has a potential to be inherently violent. If we're trying to force change, then we actually end up perpetuating the same system of trying to force our will upon a thing. And so this is where I've been looking at this reframe of instead of cultural change, which is this idea that there's this one culture and we need to have this one other culture. Whereas I think the much more necessary conversation is about diversity, a diversity of culture. The book Dawn of Everything was all about we are social experimenters. We are always, historically, we've always been experimenting with different social systems. And I think we need to return back to that. So we don't need to necessarily say we need to get away from the mechanistic culture. What I think we need is Bucky Fuller. We need to build a new system that makes the old one obsolete. So we have to perpetuate new cultures that are able to address the problem because the mechanistic culture is going to be creating problems in the world and that culture is not just going to go away. So what I think we have to do is create new cultures and perpetuate these new cultures and utilize technology to help spread those new cultures that are not just not being destructive, but are being anti-destructive and are able to address the destructiveness that is inevitably going to come from these advancements in technology being used by a mechanistic society. So I think that's the piece I really wanted to drop in there is that cultural creativity and how we can utilize technologies to effectively foster new cultural ideas in the world and help spread these new ideas to see how they can start addressing some of these problems. Thanks for that contribution. That was fantastic. I'm biased because Buckminster Fuller is my favorite engineer of all time. And some of you might know this, but he early on in his career was running out of money and he had a family to provide for. And in the midst of that tumultuous sense of not being able to provide for his family, he realized that his life insurance through his employer was his most valuable asset. And the reason why I'm mentioning this story is because it, it connects to deeply what you're bringing up here, the nature of the individual in this process. Bucky 
bless his heart, decided to try to jump off a bridge so that he could get his life insurance money for his family because he thought that was the only way he could provide for them. And allegedly, according to his testimony, he, in jumping off the bridge, was pushed back by an invisible force. This is a very substantive, logical thinker, one of the like, preeminent engineers, I think, of the last century. He's up there with Tesla for me. And he still, even towards the end of his life, attested to having been pushed back by some paranormal or invisible or spiritual force, and that he received a message that he was not ready, and that he had a lot to do for humanity, and that he was challenged to see just how much he could do with the goodness of his heart and who he was, not just for himself, but for his family and for his community and for all the people that followed him with these technological innovations that he helped to bring us, including the geodesic dome and all these amazing things that we still don't really use enough, like the Dymaxian map, I think is a much better method of projecting the world than the Mercator, for example. But there was a deeply spiritual origin story to this hero in our last century of technological development that is often forgotten or not openly discussed because we celebrate his technologies and what he did for all of us. Like structural engineering has fundamentally been changed because of his understanding of triangle being inherently one of the strongest unit cells to build a, say, dome out of, for example. And his benefit to the world is enormous. And it came out of him realizing in this moment through this deeply spiritual, psychedelic, paranormal experience that he could contribute an enormous amount of good if he chose to. And he went back home, did not attempt to take his own life again, and made an enormous impact. Even if not everybody knows his name, I get goosebumps talking about him because he's one of my biggest influences in my drive to contribute to the technological noosphere as an engineer. And that's the power of the individual to the collective. Two quick things on Bucky, and then I'll let you wrap it, Ryan, if you want. One thing is that for those unfamiliar with his work, he had this concept of tensegrity, which I love, which is about the structural integrity created by opposing tensions within an architectural object. And I think about that all the time because Bucky was friends with and on speaking tour with another person hold in great high respect, the historian William Irwin Thompson. And when William Irwin Thompson founded the Lindisfarne Association, which included a bunch of people, one in this room might recognize as enormously influential 20th century ecosystemic thinkers. It was a think tank for the articulation of a planetary culture, as opposed to a global society. Like this, precisely the kind of thing that you're talking about here, return to a sort of a flowering of nested local to global systems in, of creative expression and sustenance. And, and Bill Thompson, in forming Lindisfarne, specifically made the decision, like Obama, when he was Obama was filling his cabinet, to fill it with people who opposed him ideologically because he saw beyond his own position in an argument when he recognized that the, the service to the discourse, to the dialogue, and to sharpening of our understanding and the refinement of our of sense of things required, basically, I might, be, I might live in the bicep, I might be politically identified with the bicep, but I'm going to encourage the tricep, right? You have to give ground to the opposition in order to create something that ultimately betters everybody. And so tensegrity, I feel like, is such an important social principle. And then the other thing, which you know, speaks to earlier comments that we made here, 
about AI and intellectual property and the future of work or whatever that is, is I'm sure a lot of you have seen this. Bucky Fuller has this superb quote about how jobs are a specious notion. And as someone who just left the only adult job that I've ever had and is now back to figuring out how I can play at furthering this cultural project rather than just like working inside the cathedral pyramid hospital. I I really, I want all of us to succeed at being gainfully unemployed by organizations while we become gainfully employed by whatever's emerging in the noosphere. And my buddy, Oscar Sharp, who is, who won a bunch of awards for being the first person to film a feature it was a 15-minute short film called... Oh, Jesus. Anyway, Sun something. Anyway, sorry, Oscar. But it won a bunch of awards, and Oscar and I are in this thread, people talking about AI, and he said, we need to stop thinking about technological unemploy- unemployment, technological unemployability, and start thinking about technological employment, where we're using language models, to Roger's point, to coordinate human activity so that you can get into quote-unquote, ikigai of alignment of personal values with your skills and abilities, with your passions, with what the world needs and what it's willing to pay for, and that we can basically create flocks that are match-made by these systems that will so dramatically reach the labor economy that it's like the gig economy becomes this thing where you're given basically like algorithmically proposed contracts that you can jump on and then like flock with people and that we will look back from that world on the, the, I, this world in which people were hiring other people. And then some people were like billionaires that were capable of reshaping the geosphere with their whims and be like, ew, gross. That's like slavery. <laughs> Right. That's, we're actually glad that's over. And I don't know, that's one of those things that I want to leave folks with on my end of this conversation is if I'm thinking about what a good trip looks like, it's when, you know, it's like the experiences that I've had when like everyone in my group is tripping really hard. And so none of us can really like make call about what the group should do next. So like, we just all like, form a multicellular thing and then somebody's got the talking stick and then we just like spontaneously reassign the talking stick and then like we pursue whatever looks interesting across the festival or whatever together there's some there's like an emerging egregoric kind of intelligence that ad hoc collective organism to take yeah yes just i don't know i don't know let the let the pod decide where this is going next and i that sounds like the kind of job i'm I want to provide me with life insurance. I wish you the best of luck. I I would love to see you succeed in that because that means that maybe I could do the same going forward and that everybody else could feel empowered or they feel like that's their path. So the last thought I want to impart in this conversation, and I know we're going over time, so so thanks to everybody for being patient with us and for joining in. I think that was well worth the extension of the timeline here, is that I hope very much for the paradigm that Juicy was expressing as well, right? There's this uh, great juicy potential in the now. There is an enormous amount of potential in this asymptotic chaos of multiple disruptors, AI being only one, another being potentially UAP, UFO phenomenology, which is, of course, increasingly complex and public, among others. But that 
the outcome of that is, is unknown. The individual acts of each one of us is ultimately what will drive that over the transition points into potentially this new paradigm, a much more positive one. But being attached to that outcome is a little bit tumultuous and potentially folly. So I can hope for that future. And I can hope almost to the point of it being stubborn and unwilling to to deviate, even when I feel like the odds are against us in some ways. And those days come and go, right? And sometimes those days extend as they did through COVID in, in one example that all of us shared. But it's the sense of being a hope punk, that being hopeful is a it is a driver towards that better horizon. Whether we get there or not, it's exciting to try. And the more of us that do it, the more probable that brighter horizon becomes. And maybe it doesn't happen. That's, a, that's okay. There could be a civilization three billion years from now on Earth, completely different morphology and completely different structure, for example, that might have the same conversation. This could happen all across the galaxy, all across the universe, all the time. And this is one chance that we get now. And it's okay if we don't succeed, but I really hope we do. And I'm not going to stop hoping. Amen. By the way, that's Future Fossils 116. Kevin Arthur Wolmet reads two two different scenarios of the Earth 10 billion years hence. Check it out. Anyway. Um, Yeah, I'm feeling inspired by these thoughts of our age-old concept of living the way you want the world to be. Finding your own bliss, living in your own unemployed utopia. Fun employed. Right? And yet, how do we amplify that? So... I think in order to escape the sort of gray mesh hive mind of the unplugged cell phone, where the, out of the phone bank, you're in nothing, which is also where you are an anonymous, ubiquitous cell. I think we have to find a way into fractaled pods of neural nets where you are in groups that matter with people that you know, doing work that you care about and depend on, and then those are hyper-connected but it's not a flat field entirely. We're still in our groups. For this, I co-founded with a friend of ours, Michael Joe Ramos, a group that we called Fractal Tribe, which originated as a set of principles for a group of decentralized people to come together and do work. So it was decision-making processes and governance structures that would allow a group of people to come under somebody's inspirational idea, get together, act fast, make crazy shit happen, and then disperse. The concept of fractal tribe is dawning on me at this moment, is this idea that this is a small pod, but the concept could be leveraged again over here and again over here and again over here and then networked in whole. And I'm feeling inspired by that. I think to take it from that individual level, then further up, what we need to find is a sort of sociological crisper. So we need invent, engineer, design the virus that infiltrates the current system and usurps it from the inside. Glenn Wiles is speaking to some of this in Radical Exchange. He does an incredible podcast on 80,000 Hours where he speaks for the most part that this interviewer is asking questions about the book that he released about all these very complex economic features. And at the end of the podcast, he's cool. I actually don't care about any of that. Since I wrote that book, I've learned a lot. And now can we talk about the things that matter? And he talks about bringing more and more diverse voices into the mix to create an emergent behavior that supplants democracy and the nation state. So I'm curious where his latest thinking is. But And that paper, by the way, I got to go to Glenn's conference in Berkeley in January. And 
that work. I interviewed him on Complexity Podcast with Chris Moore, episode 97, and we talked about that paper, The Decentralized Society, which was co-authored with Pooja Olhaver and Vitalik Buterin. And Pooja was actually, the woman in that group was actually the prime driver of this idea for quadratic voting that allows for an intersectional counterweighting to the tyranny of the majority in democracy by assigning non-transferable tokens on distributed ledger system so that you can learn to trust somebody even if you don't understand the proxies. So it's rather than relying on this like antiquated PhD system or whatever this systems by which we estimate in the modern world, whether or not to actually listen to somebody or whether we decide to write them off to consider them a crank or whatever, then you can do this thing where basically you can kind of bridge second person intersubjective verification to third person, more objective verification with the system that allows a person's reputation to be established, even though you may not directly know how that you may not have the you know, so I, I'm really optimistic about his thing. Uh, God damn it, we're not ending this. I know, <laughs> but I do think we just concept of looking for influence in in addition to living your best life to think influentially. Like, how are we going to create this spreadable namshub? Going back to Snow Crash or this mimetic yeah. concept of better system that will suck people in and take over the one that we have. And I think that's probably going to have to do with serving more people, serving the people that are inherently left out, serving the people that would be attacking the system otherwise, or even gaining from it. Yes, game, for those of you who know Game B, is, that's a Schmachtenberger thing on Jordan Hall and on Jim and all those. Is Game B perhaps not service-oriented enough to be okay but now we're having insider baseball right. okay thanks everybody <laughs> thank you yeah this is great i want to big big thanks to evan and ryan and juicy and roger and all of you who sat back there and allowed us to perform having something more important to say than any of you <laughs> although i'm sure that's complete crap and that every one of you god i'm so sick of okay and now i'm going to go up on stage and be an entertainer so I, footnote <laughs> yeah. i want to go back to the dr x comment and revoke that. I want to clear my name of the idea that I am some sort of ringleader of this space, coaching other people. We do try to sit back, make a container, and then let the community lead. And that's where actually the most interesting things happen. So stuff like this is occurring, and I didn't do that. So... Thank you all. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we could freeze time or have as much time as we wanted. And all of you would have the opportunity to contribute to this podcast. And we have a 24 hour long epic podcast that somehow like <laughs> enacts and catalyzes all these changes that we're talking about. So thank you all for your patience. If you really felt compelled to speak, share something, feel free to come up and talk to us once we're done jamming. I would love to talk with all of you if I could. Yeah. To that point, actually getting to this point where I love singing songs, writing songs, but next time I'm here, We'll have a, a live looping in the round session where we'll all make noise together. Thanks for listening. In the weeks to come, we have conversations with experimental filmmaker Ken Adams, a panel on the creative misuse of technology hosted by The Next Museum, a panel that I hosted at the MAP Psychedelic Science Conference focusing on the writing of Samantha Sweetwater, a fun on-site interview at that same conference about techno-shamanism with Layman Pascal, 
a trialogue with Mitch Schultz and Shanta Stevens about their project, The Conscious Molecule, follow-up to the 2012 documentary DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and much more. Stay tuned at michaelgarfield.substack.com, patreon.com slash michaelgarfield. And if I don't see you in the Future Fossils Discord server first, have a great week.